One of my favourite places in the world has to be Tokyo. I visited the action-packed Ueno district on my very first night in Japan and it offered it all. It was coated in neon signs, clustered with tiny ramen restaurants and bustling with students and office workers alike. I'm Amy White and you're listening to the Rough Guide to Everywhere podcast. For our final episode, we'll be looking at some of the best places on earth. And to book your own bespoke trip with the help of local experts, head to roughguides.com. We thought we'd talk to some of our writers and editors at Rough Guides in order to find the best place on earth. So we turned the microphone on the Rough Guys offices. I'm not afraid of adrenaline Are you not just scared that it'll just snap? Yes. <laughs> I spoke to Helen Fanthorpe, a senior editor at Rough Guides and Insight Guides. And why bungee jumping? As she's the editor for our Best Places on Earth book, I wanted to get a sneak peek into some of the places she selected for it. over bungee jumping. I would also give skydiving a go. Okay, but I think so. bungee jumping, you are still connected to something in a way. Yeah, connected but what if it rope. snaps or it breaks your ankle, you know? Send me a video, I'll watch it. So one of the entries in Best Places is one that you wrote yourself. Can you talk a bit about that entry? The Genghis Khan equestrian statue, kind of enormous statue of Genghis Khan in the middle of the steppe in Mongolia, created in 2008, so it's a relatively kind of new monument. It's the biggest equestrian statue in the world at 44 metres tall, created using 250 tonnes of stainless steel. You can climb up to the horse's head and you get kind of amazing panoramic views. There's also an enormous boot inside the statue of the horse, um, which is apparently the world's largest traditional boot. The boot alone is nine metres tall, so Genghis Khan is really kind of important. And I think the idea of this big kind of silver horse in the middle of the kind of Mongolian steppe is quite a kind of nice image. Very remote. Yeah, I I know. Could you describe a remote spot that you've been to before? A place called Noidar in Scotland, which is a peninsula to get there you get on a kind of little boat across the sea once you're there all of your supplies have to come across in a little boat so you have quite a fun time kind of making your shopping list it's right by the sea there are lots of wild deer around it's kind of a few miles walk to the pub which is the most remote pub in britain where do you fly into (laughs) Um, we actually got the same train that is used in the Harry Potter film. So going over those bridges, you go over the same bridges as the ones in Harry Potter. We have two inspirational guidebooks hitting the shelves in September. Make the most of your time on Earth and the 100 best places on Earth 2020. When I think of the places I enjoy, it's a real mixed bag. I like a challenging hike as much as I do people watching over a cup of fresh coffee. Lots of our in-the-know writers picked places from all over the globe, but for me, the one that tops it has to be from Shafik Medji. He'd ventured to one of the remotest spots on Earth, 
and when I heard about this, I got in contact to hear about his rather frosty voyage. The very first steps were um, about knee-deep in churling um, uh, surf. One of my fellow passengers a few minutes earlier had actually toppled in. My first steps were very ginger. And my name is Shafiq Meji, I'm a travel writer and author. Um, I specialise in Latin America. Yeah, one of my most recent trips was to Antarctica. So, first of all, um, could you tell me about your voyage to the Antarctic and like why and where did you go? The why is easy. Um, I spend a lot of time in um, Latin America, particularly Argentina. I used to live there. I, I've um, been there many times for rough guides to uh, do various guidebooks and articles and that kind of thing. Uh, and I particularly love the South. But then inevitably in travel, there's always somewhere further to go. It was a three-week um, voyage. It left uh, from a place called Puerto Madryn, which is on um, the Atlantic coast of Patagonia in Argentina. Uh, and it was um, the first stop after two days was the Falkland Islands. And we stayed there, explored a bit. Uh, and from there, it was another two-day sail, about 1,400 uh, kilometers uh, southeast to South Georgia, which uh, I'm lucky enough to have been to quite a lot of remote places. Um, but this was probably the most remote place I've ever been to, and spent four days there, and then um, traveled southwest to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the uh, finger of land that points up at southern South America. When you look at some of the facts about the Antarctic, you could easily think that you were describing a planet from a sci-fi movie. It's one of the windiest spots on Earth, with average speeds reaching 200 miles per hour. It has the southernmost active volcano, but paradoxically has the coldest ever temperature recorded on Earth at almost minus 90 degrees Celsius, or around 130 degrees Fahrenheit if you're across the pond. The dry valleys of Antarctica are the driest places on Earth, with low humidity and almost no snow or ice cover. And what I find the most bizarre is that there aren't any trees or shrubs in Antarctica, and there are only two species of flowering plants. It's definitely different to anywhere else I've heard of before. And even though it's 90% made up of ice, it has a sand dune which is located in the McMurdo Dry Valleys. How did it feel to go somewhere that hardly anyone had been to? The actual crossing itself, which I had been warned about before, but there's nothing like uh, first-hand experience um, of learning just how rough the seas are in that part of the world. So there was a lot of awe, both at the, uh, the sites, the wildlife, um, but also just how turbulent the sea was and, um, yeah, the, the challenges of travelling, even in relative luxury in this part of the world. So, Ben Osborne, I mean, for good and bad, you get to know your fellow passengers and fellow crewmates really well. Fortunately, 
Ben, who I got to know um, really well on this this trip, was um, was an absolute gem. So he was the onboard photographer. Hundreds of thousands, millions of photos. Uh, probably not millions, but um, I mean, from the old days, it's yeah. all slides. So I've yeah. got two cabinet, two filing cabinets still full of slides yeah. of previous Antarctic trips, which I'm trying desperately to either throw out or copy. <laughs> <laughs> or archive in some way. Um, now kind of quite incredible like career, actually. Uh, he um, he had a science background. He worked on, that's what took him to South Georgia initially, uh, to weigh albatross chicks. Um, and then he uh, later became a photographer. He worked with David Attenborough. He won Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And on board, he would, um, uh, as well as working as a guide, he would help us improve our, our photography. And now you begin to realise that in a very short space of time the landscape is changing dramatically. So mm. South Georgia, the glaciers are going retreating extremely fast. Mm. So those pictures, I'm glad I hang on to them because they now act as a valuable resource to compare then and now in terms of both penguin colony size and, and glacier sort of retreat and, and those kind of changes that are happening quite fast. On, on St Andrews Bay on South Georgia, a friend of mine who actually to be honest, he died five years ago today. He describes that glacier on St Andrews Bay as having as coming down to the beach and you could only get past it at low tide and you had to run because the bits of ice might drop off it. And now it's miles back from the beach. And he was there literally about late 70s, about 78, 79, I think it was. And so that's the speed of change of those glaciers. And you, you wouldn't even begin to dream that that glacier could, not, could it be anywhere near the sea, mm. seeing where it is now, but it was, and that's only 40 years ago. The saddest fact of all is that, due to climate change, the Antarctic is melting. You know, I was, I was certainly aware of, of uh, the climate crisis um, and, you know, quite frankly, you shouldn't need to have to travel to Antarctica to, to become aware of it. Nevertheless, actually seeing the, the first-hand impacts, um, seeing photos of uh, the glaciers on South Georgia that reached to a beach, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that now have receded hundreds and hundreds of metres away is really quite a sobering experience. Seeing Elephant Island, uh, we can see the black and white photos from 1916 when him and his men were stranded there. Uh, now it looks different. There's different species there. Um, and it really brings home that um, the, the changes that are happening and, and quite how fast they're happening as well. Did you avoid all the icebergs? <laughs> the wildlife was one of the things that really first attracted me. But actually, when you see the, the icebergs up close, uh, you know, and, and in some cases you could virtually lean out of the ship and touch them. The largest one we saw, which ridiculously isn't particularly large in Antarctic terms, was roughly the size of the Isle of Man. I mean, so we were just sailing past it for, for hours and hours. And, all, and of course, as everyone knows, 90% of the iceberg is underwater. So that was quite a humbling experience, actually. And you felt very small in, in a very good way. Can you describe the landscape of South Georgia? South Georgia, yeah. It's a mix of huge fjords, rocky beaches, huge glaciers, or at least they look huge to me, on my first visit there, I later learned that, um, sadly, every single glacier on South Georgia is in, um, in retreat, often in significant retreat. But coming into it cold, you see, yeah, huge expanses of snow and ice and rocky cliffs and beaches at the time of year that I visited, absolutely carpeted with elephant seals, fur seals and penguins. Penguins in massive numbers. 
Um, we went to one bay, uh, St Andrews Bay, uh, which is featured a lot in um, BBC wildlife documentaries, and there were 400,000 king penguins there, which is an incredible sight and, quite frankly, an even more incredible smell. Penguins in particular are very curious um, creatures. They have no need to be scared of humans, so they, um, they, they're quite happy to wander past you, wander through your legs, look at you kind of from a strange angle as if summing you up. And, and I guess to them, you, you all look all the same. Everyone is in their um, matching red jackets and uh, woolly hats and thick gloves and massive cameras and thick boots. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you did often wonder who was watching who. Yeah, they're trying to suss you out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then they realise you're not really doing anything interesting, you don't have anything interesting to eat, certainly, and then they just wander off. It was bitterly cold. Um, it was really windy. That was far from the windiest day that we had on Antarctica. We have a saying in that uh, once you get bitten by the polar bug, it's difficult to to turn away and not return. Um, it's a beautifully magical place. And, um, you know, the birds are circling above us. You've got you know, penguins, which they just simply don't care about who we are. This is their home, we are their guests, and they welcome us in, uh, these, little, these little friendly, peaceful creatures. Uh, Seb Coulthard was the onboard historian, but he also had a real passion for Ernest Shackleton, the polar explorer. So my my first visit to Antarctica was with uh, an expedition, which uh, set out to reenact the voyage of Ernest Shackleton's uh, lifeboat from Elephant Island to South Georgia. It's an open boat journey about 800 miles long. A few years ago, it's, it's he recreated Ernest Shackleton's. Uh, legendary escape, I think it was in 1916 from Elephant Island, which is at the uh, northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, to South Georgia. And so him and um, uh, some, some crewmates recreated that journey using the um, no more technology than Shackleton would have had. It's, it's uh, still a very important site, strategically, in that, um, in that um, ships can call in there on the way to the Antarctic, either scientific ships or tourism ships. Um, military vessels, fishing trawlers. Um, so um, its its importance today is just as important as it was a hundred years ago. But because it's so far away, we're talking we're talking of about about ten thousand miles from the United Kingdom. It's he knows yeah, just about as much as anyone about the um, human history of Antarctica and the wider region. I love what I do. The Antarctic has never had an indigenous uh, habitation population. You know, there, there are no voices to speak for this place. When we bring tourists down here, what we hope to do is send them home, not tourists, but send them home um, as polar ambassadors, people who have a voice, and the next time they go to vote for people who are you know, concerned about the environment, uh, then perhaps those new policymakers uh, will be able to carry the baton and help protect this place for many years to come. very powerful about connecting with nature here on a scale that is just so overwhelmingly huge that um, you know it, it, at minus five you feel your heart warming up quite a bit um, 
and that's why I return. And there are great stories of heroism and exploration, um, which are, which inspire me and drive me. And I take I take some of those lessons away, and I try and apply them in my modern uh, polar guiding career. And uh, I enjoy it. Yeah, I love it. I love what I do. Our next piece is all about adrenaline. I spoke to Dan Stables, a travel writer, who's been writing for Rough Guides for a good few years now. But because he's always on a flight to another far-flung destination, we've only ever communicated via email. I was finally able to pin him down and ask him about his entry in our Make the Most book. We're on the Pacific coast of Mexico in Acapulco, uh, this kind of legendary beach town which in the 50s and 60s was a uh, playground for the likes of John and Jackie Kennedy, Elizabeth Taylor, Frank Sinatra. Uh, and Acapulco Bay is absolutely stunning, this huge crest of sand which backs onto these jungly hills which rise up behind the town. Uh, and at the western end of the bay is this big cliff, La Quebrada. Yeah, there's Going Loco down in Acapulco, in Acapulco, which is the Four Tops. Mostly now it's sort of Mexican tourists that go there. More people should go there, it's just to see the Clavadistas, these incredible cliff divers. While he was in Mexico, he found a group of daredevil youths in Acapulco who take part in a tradition which goes all the way back to the 1920s. It's been going for the best part of 100 years now. Uh, initially it was... Uh, like local fishermen just trying to show off and outdo each other. But in 1934, it was formalised into the sort of regimented show that it is today. And the dives take place five times a day, it's 1pm, and then again at 7.30, 8.30, 9.30 and 10.30 at night. Um, and there are five or six divers and they start in the water and climb up these sort of sheer cliffs just with their bare hands. Once at the top they sort of bask in the adulation that they're getting from the crowd for a while. Uh, and then they pray to a little shrine of the Virgin Mary. And then they dive. Sometimes they dive solo, sometimes in twos or threes. And sometimes it's like straight as an arrow, sometimes it's all twists and somersaults. And then they climb back up to the top and they do it all again. And then the final dive is always a solo dive from the highest point of the cliff, which is over 100 feet. Um, and during the last set of dives at night, uh, the final diver holds flaming torches in his hands, so you get like a light show thrown into the mix as well. well if you only do one thing in Acapulco, it has to be this. Um, yeah, it's seen, Acapulco has seen a lot over the years, you know, it went from being this really glamorous party town um, to seeing a lot of cartel-related violence, but through it all, um, for getting on for 100 years, the Clavadistas have been there putting on this incredible performance, almost like a ritual, you know, like clockwork, um, five times a day. And kind of in being brash and showy on the one hand, but then really courageous and enduring on the other, um, 
they sort of sum up Acapulco as a place quite nicely. It isn't like anything else on earth. You know, it's the highest regularly performed dive in the world. It's an amazing display of bravery and athleticism and showmanship. Um, and so it's been going so regularly for nearly 100 years. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing else like it, really. Can you tell me what Dan did? So he was talking about cliff diving in Mexico. The cliffs are quite narrow, so it's quite a narrow channel that they have to dive into. They also have to time it with an incoming wave, so there's enough water for oh them to God, dive Oh my God, that sounds into. horrible. God, <laughs> Dan loved it. Yeah. Just for me, it's too much. I think, I think maybe as I'm getting older as well, I'm getting more and more scared of doing things. Yeah. You're more like aware of what could go wrong. Exactly, why happen? take the risk, you know? Thanks to Dan, Helen and Shafik for taking the time to speak to us. This was the last episode in series four of The Rough Guide to Everywhere. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the series and you can listen to all the previous episodes on any podcasting platform that you listen to. And thank you so much to Lana Chance and especially Femi Oriogan-Williams for producing a wonderful series. And yep, thank you as well for listening. Nailed it. <laughs> Sorry, did I ruin it? <laughs> <laughs> oh god, we now can't use that one. <laughs>